You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to be with you. Same room, recording the podcast. Not just same room, but same studio. This is like maybe the first time in 2021 that we have been in the same studio recording. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it was at least once before, but it seems like a long, long time. Here we are. It's a pandemic. Here we are recording the podcast. And uh, we're very busy people. Yeah. 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 Don't remind me. Oh, my God. Anxiety. Panic. I know. You've got some anxiety this week, which is unusual for you. It's not anxiety like... I'm not... Like... It's hard to explain. It's the crushing weight of everything that I've got to do and the constant, like, demands from people for more of my time and attention. You know, I can get it all done if people would just leave me alone. But instead, they come and ask me things like, why does this not have paragraph numbers? Or, do you want a sandwich? (laughs) And I realize that these are not problems, but they are things that take my attention away from accomplishing my goals. Yes, I know. It's It's so rare that it's like anxiety about something that you, whether or not you're going to do a good job. You never seem to worry about that. You only ever seem to worry about whether or not you've got enough time to get it all done. That's because I always do my best. I do my best the first time, so I don't have to do it better the next time. I know, and I appreciate that about you. You had a big win this week. I did have a big win this week, and you're burying the lead here because we want to talk about the law in relation to this as one of our topics. Oh, okay. Well, let's get right into it then. Okay. So, um, this week, I wanted to talk to you about the Certificate of Analysts. So we talked a couple weeks ago about that case out of Campbell River that applied the Alberta Court of Appeal decision in Goldson. Yes. um, Which requires the Crown not just to have a Certificate of Analyst for the alcohol standard used with the breath testing instrument, but also to file it as evidence at trial. And if it's not filed as evidence at trial, then the results get thrown out. And that was a big change. That big came change. into uh, into um, law in December 2018. And the certificate of analyst was always there floating around, but it was never really clear what the obligation was. Yeah. And I lost a trial once on that issue. We did. No, I lost a trial once on that issue what, back pre-2018? in... 2018? Yeah, back in like 2006. Well, it, wasn't, it didn't say in the code that it had to be produced. Well, it didn't point. actually say in the code that the standard had to be a standard suitable for use even then. Well, it's certified by... Certified by an analyst. But it could have been a jar of peanut butter certified by an analyst back then. It said alcohol standard. Well, anyway. (laughs) Unless there's alcohol in peanut butter. But we haven't revived Can You Fail It yet. We have to get back to that in any event. Um, Yeah, so so Campbell River. But we also lost a trial on that, if you'll recall. Yes. In Seashelt. Yes. And we made that argument and got yelled at. Yeah. (laughs) Turns out we were right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we didn't appeal that issue. Well, because at the time, that issue was basically dead in the sense of the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench had said, no, you don't have to file the certificate. So then in May of this year, 
May 21st, which also happens to be somebody's birthday. Yeah. The Alberta Court of Appeal gave us a birthday present. Yes. And that was the judgment in Goldson that said the certificate must be tendered at trial, which is great, especially because the certificate of analyst is required to be disclosed to the accused along with reasonable notice that demonstrates the Crown's intention to produce the certificate at trial. So even though it's a requirement to produce it, they also have to give you notice that they intend to produce it. Yes. And this is, of course, the issue, because the notice has frustrated (laughs) prosecutors the whole country over. It seems to be apparently very hard for Crown offices to just fax something to defense counsel that says, hey, we're going to rely on this, or email it, or send it in the mail, or have an officer serve it on the accused personally. All of these things you would think, once that judgment comes down, Crown would go, oh, we'd better get on this. Like today. Like today. Let's work over the weekend. We could probably get them all done if we if half of us came in on a Saturday. Heck, they could have retained me to do it on all of them, except for the ones where I represent the accused, because... I could get it all done in a weekend. Yeah, actually, they could have just Single. gone to a, they could have contracted a law firm to do it. Single-handedly <laughs> could have got it all done. Um, but they didn't, and instead they decided that they were just going to take the position that reasonable notice was whenever the heck they felt like it. And so there's all these cases coming up now where the Crown's trying to rely on the certificate, and defense counsel are saying that notice isn't sufficient. So the question is, Paul, what is reasonable notice? Well, it's uh, it's not just what is reasonable notice. It's what is reasonable notice bearing in mind the other limitations that are in the criminal code. Yes. So the criminal code, the reason you have to have reasonable notice, this goes actually all the way back to the 1980s, because certificate evidence has been around for a long-ass time. Long before the 1980s. Well, yeah, 1970s. okay, yeah, there's a, there's a 1973 case, but... Um, the cases all say that if you want to file certificate evidence, which is effectively an evidentiary shortcut, it's saying we don't have to produce a witness to prove this very controversial fact. We could just file a piece of paper and say, trust us, don't look at anything else and uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's literally the freaking Wizard of Oz of evidence. Yes, I agree with you. And (laughs) so... (laughs) Certificate evidence is supposed to tell the accused in a criminal trial exactly what evidence is going to be led against them and for what purpose. For the purpose of allowing the accused to make full answer and defense to that evidence. It's also supposed to, on the four corners of the document, answer any questions that would arise about that particular point of evidence. And... Correct. Sometimes it does not. And sometimes you know as defense counsel that there's other things that you can do or should do or would like to do once you find out that they plan on relying on that. Yes. Um, So when it comes to certificates of analyst, I'm sorry if you hear a lot of rustling. I'm having a very difficult time getting comfortable. It's one of the symptoms of my anxiety. I don't know why our podcast listeners need to know about this, but when I have anxiety, I can't sit comfortably. Like I, I, I... cannot get comfortable. I just need to squirm. (laughs) And I'm very sorry if you're hearing me squirming. I can't stop it. Um, 
Anyway, that's my, that'll be my tell in trial if the prosecutors ever see me squirming around. It's because I'm not comfortable. I might be losing. I can't. My legs, they hurt. They hurt touching each other. It's crazy. I, I understand, but I mean, I just... They, <laughs> you're they, watching me, and you're they, like, they, do you have to pee? <laughs> so, well, sometimes you're sitting there thinking to yourself, like, I want to see you squirm. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I don't. I just want to do the podcast. <laughs> my body actually hurts. Yeah, okay. So... In the criminal code, when it comes to certificates of analyst, you have certain things that you have to do as the accused. There are burdens on you. If you want to say, hey, analyst, I don't think you analyzed this correctly, or I don't agree with your scientific conclusions, or there's a defect on the face of the certificate that causes me concern that I want to ask you about, then you have to bring an application. And that application has to be brought 30 days before the trial, on 30 days notice to the crown and if it's not brought in that time frame you cannot bring the application you cannot cross-examine the court has no discretion anywhere in the criminal code to waive this time frame and the crown has no power anywhere in the criminal code to consent to a shorter period of time unlike so if they serve you at any point that's less than 60 days prior to the trial you can't cross-examine. You can't, can't cross-examine, and you can't comply. And not only that, I mean, if it's 64 days, you don't even have enough time to determine whether or not you need to make that notice. Oh, yeah, because you've got to, like, file a written argument. You file a written application supported by a written argument. Probably an affidavit to back it up. Yeah. And all of that has to be filed. And, I mean, this is a, an issue with which you will almost always need an expert Yep. So you would have to consult an expert witness, a forensic toxicologist, yep. uh, or a chemist, and get their opinion. That would probably take you another 60 days. Yep. Um, and then you've got to give them 30 days notice, and it must be, and the actual hearing must take place at least 30 days before the trial. Yep. Nobody can consent to a shorter period. Nobody can consent. So, does the Crown get to get away with making it so that you can't cross-examine? Like, this is effectively the position of the Crown in the cases that I've read and the case that I argued. It was like, well, we can serve it whenever the heck we feel like, as long as it's before the trial. And that's reasonable notice, because the accused can always just apply for an adjournment. So the case I had, it was 38 days before trial. Yeah. So I couldn't bring the application unless I applied to adjourn the trial and said, hey, I'd like to adjourn the trial to bring an application. At which point, inevitably... The Crown would go, well, we're fine with that so long as they waive delay. Yeah. It's your adjournment now. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't count against us. Well, I couldn't bring my application because the Crown didn't tell me, but okay. But also, you face that increased burden of the, of the cost. Yeah. The increased burden of the cost, the stress, you know, the court recognizes in Jordan that you don't need to get into an analysis like we did in the Askov era of what the prejudice is from an adjournment. Adjournments are inherently prejudicial because they are contrary to the Section 11b right. Concur. Yes. So, do you think that courts are interpreting, Paul, the legislation to require a 60-day notice period? Well, that was your... Your it was my point. argument. That was your argument, and I don't know what the courts were looking at before. I read your argument, and your yeah. argument was ultimately successful. Yes, but not for not 
The court refuses. In every case that I've found, the court stops short of saying that there must be a 60-day notice period, but they often find that the notice that was given is insufficient. Yeah. So that's what happened in yours. Notice given yes. was insufficient. So the crown bears 38 the, days. 38 days, yeah. The crown bears the burden of proving that notice was sufficient. So they have to adduce some evidence to show why 38 days is sufficient notice to an accused person that they intend to rely on the certificates. But So the court is not just looking at it and saying, look, this makes sense. It's got to be 60 days because you have to be able to give 30 days notice and the hearing has to take place 30 days before. Yes. Why isn't the court just saying that? Because and it seems from the case it law. Gener it generates a 60-day limitation period. Yeah, it so would have been great if Parliament was a little clearer about it. But this is what happens. So the case law seems to suggest that it wouldn't be reasonable to interpret the legislation as requiring a 60-day period because Parliament didn't explicitly set out 60 days. And if they intended to be reasonable notice to have been a minimum of 60 days, they would have said so. Now, I say, and this argument hasn't been accepted, although it's also not been rejected, I say that 60 days has to be the minimum because you have to read, and the judge did accept this in my case, you have to read 320.32, which is the requirement to furnish the certificate and, and to produce reasonable notice, in conjunction with the other provisions, all under 320.32, it's all the same section. They're all subsections of the same section that give the rights to the accused to bring the application. And I also said, like, you have to think about it too, this is literally the only circumstance, at least that I'm aware of, in the criminal code where the code says you may not cross-examine a witness at trial. You are barred. You are statutorily barred from cross-examining a witness at trial. The analyst is a witness, right? Their certificate is their evidence, but they are the witness, right? The certificate avoids the hearsay rule because of the statutory requirements, but but it, it, it it's the analyst's evidence, similarly with the qualified technician, and you may not, under any circumstances, cross-examine this person who is giving evidence against you unless you meet these prerequisites. I hear you. Anyway, I... Only I, instance I, the code. I just wonder now what happens. Now we're down to, you know, this is another court saying that it's got to be done and and yours was 38 days and that was not reasonable notice uh -huh. so what happens now to the ones that are out there in the uh in the uh pipeline waiting for trials 32 days from now well this is the thing um or, i guess it's 40 days from i now. mean it's it's up to the accused to object so if you have an impaired driving trial wherever you are in the country and you look at your certificate of analyst and the notice of intention to produce is not completed and the Crown hasn't done something else to try and show that they intend to produce it, I would uh, object to the admissibility of it. So first you have to object. You also should probably start the trial before you make it clear that you're objecting. Because if the Crown furnishes the reasonable notice or notice after the trial starts, it, it doesn't count at all. There's no notice, It has to be yeah. before the trial starts. And you don't want them to, like, apply for an adjournment that they get. Now, Crown has tried a number of ways to overcome this notice thing. Because, of course, they were, for a long time, just 
putting the certificates in the disclosure package and saying, well, that's that's sufficient, but not completing the notice of intention to produce. Well, it's not notice. I mean, there's lots of things in the in the in the yes. disclosure that's not going to be evidence, and that they're never going to run. Exactly. So you don't know necessarily unless they tell you specifically. And there's some things you can reasonably assume that they're going to likely want to run, like the ASD results, um, for the purpose of R and P grounds. But sure. But the, they give you uh, all sorts of documents, right? Like handing you handing you a hundred pages of material and saying we intend to produce this at trial. Produce yeah. which. Which, yeah. right? I, like, to, I in my no. mind, you know, there's there's some case law that has been suggesting, although, again, it's never been explicitly stated, that provision of the certificates in disclosure can constitute sufficient notice. But, like, I think it would depend on what else was in the disclosure package and how much of what was in the disclosure package was led at trial. I think it would have to be a letter that attached to it that said, this document is in the disclosure package and we intend to... Yeah. To rely on this at the trial. But, like, why not just complete the notice of intention to produce? Well, the notice of intention to produce, yeah. I mean, I'd have to look at it again to see if it has to be handed over that day. But in any event, there's ways to do it. Yeah. It's not that difficult. Now, here's the third issue that has been arising out of this notice problem. In order for a certificate to go in as evidence, yeah. not only must it be a certificate, it must be a true and accurate copy of the original. Yeah, and that's another issue that um, I'm surprised that you want to talk about on the podcast. because No prosecutors are listening to this we podcast. We were saving that one in our back pocket. Well, I made the argument in, in Edson. Because you'd never know if it's a true or accurate copy unless you have somebody who's but, done the copy. So here's the thing. In Edson um, and in Alberta, what they've done is they've got, they hired similar to your suggestion earlier, they hired a law firm in BC, hired a lawyer to go to the lab in Surrey to inspect the original and to make copies, a copy, and certify it as a true copy of the original. And that's what they're disclosing, a notarized true copy. Could you uh, subpoena that, have that lawyer come to testify? And would that, would their, would their notarized thing be sufficient, or does he have to testify at the trial? It's hearsay. Well, that's a good question, because that's not the certificate. That's I mean, he's additional a evidence. You know, point. I never even thought about that. That's pretty clever. Yes, yes, I think he has to be produced for cross examination on how he determined it was a true and accurate copy. Because how do you know? Yeah, it's not it's not evidence that's admissible under some other provision of the criminal code. No, his his certificate is not his certification is not a certificate that's admissible in the criminal code. Yeah, yeah, clever, Paul. I like it. So that's what Alberta's doing. Other provinces are not doing that, and I don't know how they're going to overcome this true and accurate copy hurdle. I'm in the midst of a trial in um, Whitehorse where. That question has come up. Argument is due in March, so I'm not going to say any more about it, but it's come up. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. And service is also being affected in all sorts of crazy ways, like uh, Alberta Crown has been emailing it to defense lawyers and then filing affidavits from assistants in the Crown office. Well, that was an issue in your trial. Yes. And that affidavit. It's, that's the practice, though. But that affidavit 
That affidavit was That affidavit nonsense. was so bad. And we looked at it, and you had we had some discussion. You and I talked about whether or not um, you wanted to cross-examine that person and, and ultimately concluded that you didn't need to cross-examine the person because the affidavit was just so bad. Yeah, it was I mean, a deficient affidavit, affidavit. Well, I mean, it was an affidavit that said, we may have done this, we may have done this, we may have done this. I'm sure it would have happened one of these many different ways. I looked at um, the disclosure, and it was there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's... Just, that's not an affidavit. I mean, that's not evidence, right? And again, they're trying to get that affidavit in, um, you, and a, a witness certainly who's compellable, because that affidavit is not in any way uh, permissible by the criminal code. Yes, it's it the, is. Well, permissible, yes, but not, uh, certainly it's one that you don't have to apply to uh, 30 days before to cross-examine no, that person. You can, so <laughs> you to can, prove service yeah. of anything in the criminal code, you can file an affidavit, and it goes in automatically under, like, Section 3.2 or something. Yeah, but you're entitled to cross-examine. Yeah, you are entitled, you're not entitled to cross-examine, you're entitled to bring an application, application to cross-examine. Cross so that's a thing that can be done. Um, so, yes, the affidavits uh, are one way of doing it. Uh, other ways seem to be faxing it to defense counsel, <laughs> like you can prove what came out on the other end of the fax machine. You and I had this in a trial yes. years ago in Victoria, where Crown faxed the certificate, um, and how do you and saying it's a true and accurate copy was served on the uh, yeah, we, on we, the uh, on defense counsel, and you're like, how do we know what was it? That it, how do you know what came out at our end is a true and accurate copy? Well, we didn't even say that. The judge said that. It was it was kind of like a little who's on first. We had a different argument. Yeah. We didn't have to make the argument. The judge made the argument for us. Yeah. It, you know, he said, it's well, like, we faxed it to them. The judge said, well, how do you know, how do you what, know came what came out at the other end? You weren't <laughs> He's there. like, well, well, we faxed it. Right. But how do you know what they received? Well, you there's a confirmation. Right. But how do you know how it printed out on that end? Yeah. Because the confirmation was like, okay, yeah. Crown, you're yeah. not... I don't think you use a fax machine very often. Yeah. I think yeah. he was like 23. He was a little kid well, at the time. it was new. new uh, he faxes are confusing. People, well, faxes, who uses faxes anymore? <laughs> lawyers. Lawyers. And doctors. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, every once in a while, especially with some law offices where they, they I mean, we have a big couple of big Rico fax machines that usually are functioning and but we still have to call the Rico service guy every once in a while but yeah. I remember uh, you know fax machines where the paper would get all crunched up and you wouldn't get anything oh, or if yeah. you had uh, a fax machine that had thermal paper on it okay it, nobody it has those anymore have a, well John Keepers used to okay um, well. and still had one I packed it up for him when he uh, when he retired <laughs> yes so uh, that's an interesting way to try and serve documents yeah um so yeah this is all very interesting and well congratulations on your big success thank you yeah. the irony of all of this paul is that all these provisions of the code were intended to make the prosecution of impaired driving offenses easier and yet somehow it's created these massive procedural hurdles for crown that literally did not exist before well you know they were sort of waiting to be argued, though, weren't they? Now that you realize that maybe somebody had spotted these holes and then they tried to patch the holes, and now we're like, everybody can see the hole that they tried to patch, and the patch didn't work. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, you know, we have we do things so differently than in the United States. In the United States, um, in every trial for an 08, 
uh, they call an expert witness to extrapolate back to the time of, of driving. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to demonstrate that the reliability of the tests that they've that they've conducted. Yeah. Um, and that's all evidence that they call, and they routinely do it, and they know how to do it, and we routinely don't do it, and don't know how to do it, and we could. You know, their conviction rate might be better than ours, for all I know, because we've tried to create these easy ways, and in the end, the easy ways have holes. Here's the thing about defense lawyers. Unlike, I think, many other types of lawyers, where if you make it a lot harder for us to protect our clients, we don't just go, oh, well, that makes our job a lot harder. I guess that's too bad. So much for that. We get smarter. Well, that's certainly true with us and the changes to impaired driving law over the last 20 years. I've witnessed this with myself. I've worked out so many more different arguments. Um, But I would also say there's lots of people who are not as motivated as we are who are probably discouraged. Yes. And I knew some older lawyers. And, oh my goodness. Somebody tried to call our podcast studio. There you go. We should have callers call in. Uh, <laughs> what did the caller want to say? Uh, they were. It was tongue. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the um, you know, I I am not uh, I am not as on all of this stuff as you are. Um, I learned all of my impaired driving law under the previous scheme. Right. Um, you know, I still am not happy about the changes from the Stillman analysis. Uh, people complain about the length of time that trials take in, uh, you know, this murder conviction of these three fellows who killed the jogger in the U.S. That trial took a month. Yep. Uh, if that was in Canada, it would have taken six months. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> and there would have been uh, a prelim. And yeah. And uh, I'm, uh, I, you know, that's all changes to the uh, interpretation of of how you deal with charter violations has led to that, and I'm you know I'm a bit of a dinosaur compared to you, um, but yes, you and I still live this stuff. Moving on to our next topic, Paul, I thought we would talk a little bit about a case that you found actually that deals with withdrawal of a guilty plea. So this is a case out of Quebec, but it kind of happens in the same way in every province, and that's that. If you end up convicted of an impaired driving offense, your first conviction, under provincial legislation, you get an automatic driving prohibition. Also pursuant to the criminal code. Yes. But on your second conviction, pursuant to the criminal code, you get an automatic driving prohibition of three years. And on your second conviction under provincial legislation, three years. On your third conviction, pursuant to the code, under the code... I can't remember how long it is. Maybe 10. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's not for life, which yeah. it is in BC and in Quebec, at least, and other places. Yeah. So there's basically, you, you end up with your conviction and you go to court and the judge sentences you. And there's, by operation of law, longer driver driving prohibitions than a judge would necessarily sentence you to. Yes. And not just that, there's other consequences that are not disclosed to you there. When you go in, responsible driver sure, program. When you go in to plead guilty, and you find out about them after the fact, and and you know they exist in law, so you know maybe you are presumed to know about them. But some of the things 
our interpretation of the superintendent of motor vehicles, discretion of the superintendent of motor vehicles. They're all collateral consequences, though. And if you are a lawyer taking an impaired driving case, you'd better very carefully read the Motor Vehicle Act and probably call someone who specializes in the area to find out about the collateral consequences before advising a client to plead guilty for even a first offense. That's a fairly common thing that happens to people in BC. It happens to lawyers. I don't know how many times it leads to a complaint, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't know that even if you get a discharge, an absolute discharge in BC for dangerous driving, you still end up with a one-year driving prohibition pursuant to Section 99 of the Motor Vehicle Act. Yep. Um, it's a um, And it's by operation of law. Uh, judges don't have to order it. Some judges will mention that it's happening. Sometimes I've had judges decline to make that order, uh, knowing that it's going to happen in any event. Uh, but in any event, the uh, there are these collateral consequences that are not disclosed to you. And you're looking at it as a person, and you get this uh, little document on the top of your disclosure that says, this is what the Crown is seeking. I think if you're a prosecutor listening to this, ha ha ha, no prosecutors listen to this. Um, If you're a prosecutor listening to this, or if you're a judge listening to this podcast, you should probably always consider either ordering or asking for, as the case may be, the criminal code prohibition in the case of a discharge on a dangerous driving offense. And the reason I say that is the Section 99 Motor Vehicle Act prohibition is without notice, um, and it will frustrate the Crown's ability to prove a driving while prohibited charge, or drive while disqualified, um, if it's not ordered by the court. There can be a reason to do it. I've asked for it before and had the court decline to do it. I'm just leaving it as operation of law. I can't remember what the reason was. Uh, But yeah, it would be very difficult. It would be more difficult to prosecute it. There is a notice that goes out. It's a letter that goes to the people telling them you've been convicted or you've been received a discharge for this. Yep. And therefore, you are prohibited as of this date. But yeah, there's not, you know, and it goes with a registered mail. Uh, but prosecuting the person in those cases would be difficult. So going back to the what? Quebec case. Yes, back to the Quebec case. So this poor fellow, uh, Mr. Baines, uh, was convicted of impaired driving. And after his conviction, after pleading guilty, he got a letter two months later so outside the time to file his appeal, um, advising him essentially of the full legal consequences of his plea, which he did not know at the time. Um, And so he applied for leave to appeal. He applied to adduce fresh evidence to indicate that he didn't know. Um, And uh, he also uh, uh, had his former defense counsel fall on his sword and say, I didn't tell him about this. Oopsie. Didn't know. Yep, didn't know. Um, They were cross-examined by Crown, and uh, ultimately uh, it was agreed that the appellant was not aware of all of the legal consequences of his plea, uh, did not know that he would lose his license for the rest of his life, and he asked for the conviction to be quashed and a new trial to be ordered. And it's an interesting thing because you go through the 606... um, provisions when you're doing a plea and the, mm-hmm. the court will ask your client all of these questions and one of them is do you understand the nature and consequences of your plea 
you can only understand that, though, so far as you've been well, that's advised by your counsel. You know, the, the people understand the nature and consequences of the plea. I mean, I always tell people, look, there's consequences that I can't comprehend, that I can't predict. I don't know how the Americans are going to view it. I don't know if they're going to change the rules that tell us that means that you can never be hired if you've done this. Like, I, there's all these things that I don't know are the potential consequences of it. But I think there's a there's a distinction between the way the consequences might happen if things changed in the future. Like if legislation was introduced in the U.S. to ban people who have impaired convictions from entering the U.S. You wouldn't be able to turn around and say, well, I pled guilty in 2021, and this legislation came out in 2022, and I couldn't have known I'd like to withdraw my plea because I need to travel to the States for work. But there's lots of things where you don't know how it's going to be viewed by somebody else who has some authority over this person in the future. Yeah, which is and why you should never plead guilty. Well, these are the consequences. Well, we plead people guilty to motor vehicle act offenses with regularity, and often the judges want to go through the 606 provisions, which yeah. I don't think are necessary. In those circumstances, but uh, but even if you're pleading guilty for a dangerous with a discharge, for example, even right. with a joint submission for a discharge, does the person understand all of the potential consequences? And the criminal code now has been interpreted to ask the person that they whether or not they do, and can they ever? And in this Quebec case, the guy didn't, but you can never know all of the potential consequences. So, you know... Where are you going to draw the line? Well, I think the Supreme Court of Canada, though, in that immigration case, had a pretty good... Why am I forgetting the name of it? Can, maybe? Something like that. Um, they had a, a pretty good explanation of, you know, it's what should he should have known. Well, yes. Um, anyway, this was... Uh, I thought this was quite a stretch for the Quebec Court of Appeal to do this, and it's something that we have seen many times where people have pled guilty, and they phoned me a few months later and said, I've got this letter that says I have a lifetime driving prohibition now. Yeah, dude. And my lawyer never told me this. And I was like, well, I would have Well, you I could, you could you, apply but... for an extension of the time and you could bring the appeal. Well, and the Crown would do. probably concede the appeal. Maybe. But it's a lot of work and it's expensive. Yeah, well. And you'd have to have your former lawyer say you're right i didn't tell him well but and then you're up then after that after your appeal this guy's got to have a trial yeah and, <laughs> and then you have to have a trial and still win <laughs> if, I mean, if you lose you're in the same boat yes and it's a lot more expensive yeah but i mean over the years i've just told people sorry tough luck it, here's a dumb question i'm going to publicly ask a dumb question on the podcast if you enter a guilty plea and then you appeal your guilty plea on the basis that it wasn't fully informed, can the evidence of your guilty plea be used against you in a trial after that point? I, I just cannot imagine that it would be used. What is it? A, it it's first it's of all... an admission of all of the elements of the offense. Is it, though? I mean, it's, it's such a general statement. I mean, it can't be. It would it be wrong. It can't be. It would be an abusive process. Yeah. Um, I just don't no, know what the rule is or no, where it comes from. I mean, and who are you gonna you gonna make the judge a witness? No, it's not gonna be used. It would never be used. Okay, Paul. Yes. It's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week.
Awesome. You found this one. Did so. I? Which one is it? I send you I send you two or three every week, and I never know which one you're going to select. And every once in a while, you surprise mm -hmm. me. And last week, you held one over for a week, which really... That's true. I've sort of forgotten all about it. Uh, okay, well, this one takes place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm looking at you, trying to figure it out. Well, this is a police officer. Oh, okay. And we all know police officers are just as responsible for impaired driving as everybody else. Off-duty, driving, teenage son in the car, drunk, and crashes into another car, driven by a news reporter. Yeah. I mean... Really bad. News reporters have a lot of power and obligations and uh, interesting relationships with... And evidence-gathering... And evidence-gathering <laughs> skills. <laughs> and the power to report, which can be very damaging... Uh, and uh, that's not one that um, you would escape scrutiny for if you're a police officer. Even better, that's for sure. This is two forty-five in the afternoon. You're yeah. a drunk cop with your teenager who could presumably drive in the car. Fifteen-year-old teenager, I think. In the afternoon, and you smash into a reporter. <laughs> what a bad day! That's a bad day for that person, anyway. And he makes it worse. How? He leaves the sea. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he, he goes up onto an embank embankment in the opposing lane shoulder and then drives away. But she recognizes the car, the reporter, because the cop is also her neighbor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and the poor kid was injured, actually, which is kind of sad. He was found uh, about a quarter mile away and admitted being involved in the crash um, the reporter was injured too, and, uh, he refused to do the field sobriety test, which of course you are allowed to refuse in the in U.S. most U.S. states. Not all, I think. In listen, Georgia, I think you're required to... Listen to my part. podcast with Mark Thiessen for more on that. Um, and, uh, did consent to a DUI blood test, and, uh... Has yeah. a big problem. Has a big, big, big problem. Well, there you go. There's a lesson in there. And <laughs> Don't drive drunk. It, it, probably, it starts hours before the yeah. incident. Eh, call a cab. <laughs> That's the lesson. Well, I'm glad nobody was seriously injured, I'm assuming. Otherwise, you wouldn't be laughing so hard. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, maybe I would. I'm dead inside. That's true. <laughs> You're not dead inside. You're hilarious. No, I'm just filled with anxiety. And yeah, apparently. Pain. Yeah. Yep. Well, I have to tell you... Um, the uh, I look forward to next week's podcast. Yes, well, if you need to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call, 604-685-8889, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Mm -hmm.